We are continuing on in Romans, and if you're visiting, first off, congratulations for visiting on uh, this morning in particular and making it here. Way to go. And, uh, but uh, what we're doing is we're studying this really for a pretty good stretch here. We're going to study this New Testament letter. It's a long letter, an epistle. I'm calling it a book, but it's a long letter by the Apostle Paul, and we just call it Romans. And uh, we're just getting into chapter 2 this morning, so if you don't have a Bible, the text is right there in the bulletin, and you can, you can follow it there. I was back in my hometown of uh, Jackson, Mississippi this past week. Um, I grew up at First Presbyterian Church in Jackson and went to, uh, went to First Presbyterian Day School. Quick little memory from First Presbyterian Day School. Second grade, we used to have, uh, you know, a little devotional time. It was a little Christian school and a little devotional time in the mornings, and you were, uh, the teacher would read something, read from the Bible, read a story, and then we'd pray, and just, you know, for crowd control, she said, let's close our eyes when we pray so that we're not throwing things at each other, so close your eyes when we pray, and that was the rule, and uh, I remember one time right after she had prayed for us, uh, Tra- I, won't, I won't give her last name, but Tracy raised her hand and said, Miss Hand, um, Kay had her eyes open during the prayer. And, um, and I was in second grade, and I thought, man, Kay's in trouble. <laughs> and Miss Hand sort of walked us through a little logical uh, syllogism. Um, to see something, your eyes must be open. <laughs> you saw Kay with her eyes open during prayer. Therefore, your eyes were open during the prayer. And, I, and we, we found that compelling. <laughs> a little more recently, when... Uh, when you pull out of my neighborhood and make your way to, to one of the major roads that takes you where you want to go, one, there, there's one route that when you go that way, and it's, it's hard to explain this, so see if you can picture this. When you're pulling up, there's, you kind of pull up to this raised sort of embankment, and, um, and there are cars coming right at you. Now, the car coming right at you can either just go straight and go past you, but there's a curve in front of you, so it can also curve. So when you pull up, Unless they signal, you just have to wait and see what they're going to do. And, um, and what you love is that if somebody's coming and they signal to the right, you know that you can pull out and you're not going to get you know, blindsided. And, uh, and I just found myself getting so irritated at people who wouldn't signal. You know, like, especially when they would just sail right past me. I think, I could already be getting down the road if you would just let me know where you're going. And this is not an exaggeration. I had lived in our neighborhood for several years before it dawned on me. I don't think I've ever signaled <laughs> when I come back. And it made me so mad when other people did it. And I thought, I, I have not been signaling the whole time, and I've been so irritated by that. Now, that's a pretty safe, you know, sanitized example. But, but we could give a million different versions of this. It's where we look... And we're so irritated that someone is breaching a requirement, that someone is breaking a rule that we don't want broken. And we're very upset by them doing it. And we're very merciful about us doing it. If we even notice that we're breaking it at all. All That is what this passage is about. And more specifically, if you weren't here last week, this is, you know, Paul starts out this long letter. And on the front end, you can tell, I'm going to, Romans, I'm going to tell you some very good news. But then after the initial greetings, there's this block of, okay, but I'm going to tell you the bad news. 
And I'm going to paint a very bleak picture so that when we get to the good news, it's going to mean something. This passage is still in the bad news block. And part of the bad news about us is that we are extremely upset about other people's sin and not about our own. And we're great at judging others and we're extremely lenient with ourselves and that God, on the other hand, shows no partiality. And that's bad news. Now, there's good news, but this is bad news too. Romans chapter 2. And having said what he did in the first chapter about just man's sinful condition, just how messed up we are, Romans 2, verse 1, Therefore you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O man you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of His kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. He will render to each one according to his works, to those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality. He will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek but glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek, for God shows no partiality. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. For when Gentiles, who do not have the law, by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. On that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father, your, your, your book is not like all our other books. And your words are not like other words. They're just what you say is weighty. And this is a weighty passage. Everything you say is weighty, but this uh, we, we already see in some ways where this is going. So help us. Help us see how this is bad news for us, would you also show us how the good news is for people like us? And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. You know, this passage that we just looked at, if you think about it, this is what makes for tantalizing TV news. 
I mean, it really does. And that would be on, on either side. I mean, most news outlets really, they lean to the, the left or they lean to the right. You know, for a left-leaning news outlet, it's just so delicious to find somebody who has, you know, railed about graft and government and big government and, uh, and blah, blah, blah. And then you find out that, uh, that he's uh, getting kickbacks or that uh, he, he put together some kind of thing and he put pork into a bill and it's big government stuff so that his state's okay and forget the other states. And there's just something delicious about going, okay, well, there you go. There you go. The, you know, the, the guy railing about something did the very thing he's railing about, and it cuts the other way. You could have a, a right-leaning news outlet, and they find the guy that's talking about the one percenters, you know, railing about the rich, you know, and how they forget the, there's no middle class, and they forget the, uh, the 99%. And then you find out about that he's getting some huge kickback and, and um, that he vacations with billionaires and blah, blah, blah. It, it makes for great TV news. Okay, but here's... But you, do you see the trap in that? Is that whichever way you lean, if you know you're leaning, and, and uh, whichever seems more tantalizing to you, when we watch something like that and we just think, you know, there you go. There, there's the problem with today. There's the problem with our culture. What, what are we doing? We're saying, I know what the problem is, and the problem is there. And Romans 2 is looking at us this morning and essentially saying this. When you say, I know the problem, and your finger points out, that's the giveaway. That's playing the part of the judge. And Paul's saying this, having said what I just said, and if you weren't here last week, I, I'll just kind of sum it up. Last week was an indictment on the human condition. It's just an indictment on humanity's falling short of what we ought to be, to love God and love people with no good reason for doing that, and all the ways that plays out, and how it actually does deserve God's anger. That was last week. To come off that, this is so brilliant what Paul does because you can almost picture the person hearing this letter who's a religious person. And they're thinking, ah, that's true, that's true. You know, I've been living in Rome a long time and I just feel like a lone voice. You know, because I really do want to obey God. I really want to do the right thing. And I look around these temples and the debauchery and uh, the, the way this culture conducts itself and the wickedness and, and, uh, and it's, just, it's just shameful. And it, that's the problem. And coming right off that, brilliant, Paul says, so who in the world are you to point out at others if what I just said is true? Do you not know yourself? So let's, let's break this. You know, this is a very legal passage. Did you catch that? Not legalistic, but it's just, it's just legal. There's the, the language of judgment and judging and law and bearing witness and accusing. It's, court, it's just courtroom language, right? So with that in mind, let, let's look at this. First off, let's look at the judges or, or the judgers, however you want to put it, and then the judgment, and then the judge. And the judges, little j, judgers, the judgment, and then the judge. All right, first off, the judges. What does Paul say? You know, and this ties into part of the passage last week. In, in, in the passage last week, Paul says about just, just human beings across culture that 
when we disobey God, when we don't love God and don't love people, even if you've never had a Bible, even if you've never heard somebody explain the good news, we do know enough to be found guilty because there's this creation that's just screaming at us what God is like and screaming at us that there is a God and that we should yield. But Paul takes that and says, but you know what, I want you to see a detail of what God has put in us. There's not just this general knowledge that He exists and that He is who He is. But then, what does Paul say? Look in verse 14. He says, for when Gentiles... Now, don't think so much of Gentiles who an apostle has preached to. He's talking about people who just never heard the Scriptures. For when Gentiles who do not have the law, by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. Okay, how come? They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. Now, what is that saying? That... Even humanity that has never read what Paul would have called the Law and the Prophets has, by God's hand, because we're made in God's image, written on our insides a sense of what is right and what is wrong. Uh, If you've ever seen this little book about education by C.S. Lewis, it's called The Abolition of Man. There's a section in the back where he just kind of drew on his learning and he pulled from... Norse mythology and Confucianism and just all these different cultures and, and said, look, look how all these different cultures basically say the same thing about what's right and what's wrong. And where does that come from? Is it, is it because everybody compared notes? It's on the inside. And Paul says, all right, that's written there and then there's this other thing inside of you called the conscience. A friend of mine said he was reading an old Christian book one time, I think like from the 1600s, and um, the author was talking, it was a Christian book, just talking about the conscience. And this author called the conscience, quote, God's spy in your bosom. <laughs> and maybe not the way we would put it, but, but just saying this, that your conscience can be wrong. Your conscience is, is not infallible. But God puts this thing inside of you that will push on you when you go against the law that's written on your heart. And we have experienced this. I mean, you can be sitting at a red light and, um, and there's a moment of quiet. You know, maybe you've been on the phone for 15 minutes and just your ears just hot now and you say you get off the phone, you know, and there's just a little moment of quiet and you start thinking about something and you think about something you did and, and there's a sense inside of you, I was wrong to do that. That was wrong of me. That's your conscience. And then when that fires off, Another thing can fire off inside of you where you're either, you're either feeling bad about it, going, yeah, you really did do that, or you're trying to explain it away. That, Paul is describing those categories. Your thoughts either accusing you or defending you, but that's inside of us. All right, so we are very, let, let, let's put it this way, we're formatted for ethics. So what do we do with that? And here's the problem. Rather than obey, we'll take that knowledge and we'll wield it, not at ourselves. We'll wield it at other people. All right, go go back to the earlier part of the passage, verse 1. Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. 
For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, and you could almost see Paul going, the judge practiced the very same things. And, and I'll give you a famous example of this, um, you know, from a, a pretty famous Bible episode, and that is when King David committed adultery and um, had the, the husband of the woman with whom he committed adultery, Bathsheba, had her husband killed and got her pregnant and then just did not deal with it. Didn't deal with it till the child came and he was confronted by a prophet. The prophet's name is Nathan. And if you read the story, this is a part of the story that, that doesn't get talked about a lot, but I think it it's dovetails into this passage amazingly. When the, when the prophet Nathan comes to talk to David about that, he starts off with a parable. He kind of like sets the trap. And, uh, and it's a story about, you know, there was this, uh, there was this guy and he was going to have some guests over and, uh, and this guy has all this property and all these animals that he could, you know, prepare. But he goes to this one guy who has one lamb. He loves this lamb. He just treats it, treats it like a family member. And he goes and he steals that guy's lamb and he slaughters it and serves it to his guests. And the story says, man, David just comes out of his chair. First thing he says is, that man deserves to die. But then the second thing he says is, kind of takes a deep breath, he must pay that man, the guy who stole his sheep, he must pay him fourfold. You know what's interesting about that? That's from the law of Israel. Exodus chapter 22, if you steal someone else's animal, you must pay them back fourfold. So what is David doing? Let me draw on my knowledge of the law and aim it at someone else. Hey, David, did you catch two chapters earlier? Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. But where is he aiming it? Aiming it out. And there are just a million ways to do this. Um, and there's some big targets. One big target, I think, for judges are um, addicts, people with addictions. You know? Hey, look, this isn't rocket science. You're, look at your destructive behavior. Stop. You got yourself in this mess. You can get yourself out. Just stop it. Your problem is you're an alcoholic. Stop drinking. You know what to do. Why are you not doing the thing you know to do? Uh, ironically, one big target is children. And I've seen this more and more in my own life as a parent. You know, why, why are you getting so angry right now? Look, we, we need to be kind to people when they are unkind to us. And then, like, watch Brian for the rest of the day when someone's unkind to him. Um, this is the life of the judges, or the judgers. Now, what is the judgment? What's the judgment? Well, let's start off with the good news. The good news is... If you live by either the law that you've learned or if you've never heard the law of God, if you live by what's written on your heart, it'll go great. 
Look in verse 6. He will render, God will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. And then look down in verse uh, 10. There's glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good. The Jew first and also the Greek. God shows no partiality. You know what this sounds like? Again, I'm I'm thinking of examples even just in the Bible. Have you ever read the account of where the young man came up to Jesus and he knelt before him and he said, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And boy, do ministers dream of an opportunity like that? You know, please tell me how to get to heaven. It's almost like Oliver Twist. Please, sir, you know, heaven. What must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus, first off, gives a weird answer, if I may say it that way, about goodness. Throws him a curveball. But then he answers the question. What must you do to inherit eternal life? You know the commandments. And he lists off the commandments and says, just do those and you'll live. That's the good news. But, what else do we learn? Verse 13. It is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. Man, if all it took was to hear, Presbyterians would be in awesome shape because we are all about content and we prioritize content and we do a lot of it. And I'm all on board with that. But... Paul is careful to say, it's not just hearing it. You must do it. I mean, I heard a podcast of a guy who talks a lot about leadership and and, um, and even, you know, weighs in people that are doing hiring and stuff like that. And he was talking about, in the interview process, one of his team's favorite questions to ask is, what have you done? And especially with people just coming right out of school, what they want to run to tell you about is what they've learned or what they did more in kind of that, you know, lab environment of school. But like what the interviewers want to know is, but I mean out in the big bad world, what have you actually done? Favorite question. Not theory, practice. Well, what if you've done law-breaking? Verse 8. For those who are self-seeking, that just simply means that rather than prioritize God and other people, you prioritize your own interests. For those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury, which sounds like chapter 1. And question, who... Who's most guilty of that? Because that sounds like a lot of people are going to be in trouble. Who's going to be in the most trouble? And Paul answers that question. The people who will be in the most, question, uh, most trouble, people who will be most culpable are the ones who know the most. The ones to whom the most has been revealed. Look in verse 9. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek. Is he being anti-Semitic? No, because in the next verse he says, hey, but if you do good, there's this honor and glory that you'll get the Jew first and then the Greek. That that phrase is used several times in Romans. So 
So it works both ways. But just in case there's any question, look in verse 12. All who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. And all who have sinned under the law, meaning knew it, exposed to it, will be judged by the law. My first year in Greenville, just was still getting my feet on the ground. I, I had an office in a building over on Coffee Street. Had a guy in town call me and uh, wanted to, to go to lunch and said, yeah, sure. Not a member of our church, not anyone in the room. That'll make more sense in a second. And uh, wanted to get, to get together for lunch. So we had just met at my office building and we're walking down Coffee Street just to go somewhere downtown to eat. And um, he launched into something. I mean, we were not even at the corner of Coffee and Main. We, we, we are maybe two minutes into being in each other's presence. And he said, listen, people today need to obey the Ten Commandments. Now, can you guess what my question to him was? Do you obey the Ten Commandments? And that was our first and last lunch. <laughs> but, I mean, but you get it, is that it just, it, 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 it works for whoever you are. If I, if, I can, if I can put it that way, work, the judging, the judgment for which we are ripe, it works just for whoever you are. Like whether you're somebody who's had no biblical teaching, no biblical instruction, you don't really know the particulars of what God requires, then what God will hold you accountable to is not unknown data. He'll simply say, well then, let's just go by the template that you wielded at everybody else. Okay, so... We'll look at your life, and when you, look, when you looked at homeless people and, and that thing that was in maybe you didn't say it out loud, but that thing inside of you, in your heart, that was saying, well, they got themselves in this mess. They got themselves in this mess through poor decisions. It's, it's as if God says, all right, well, then what I'll do is I will look at your life, and if I find that you have gotten yourself in this mess by your poor decisions, you will be found guilty. And at that rate, the, the, the guilt rate is 100%. Or, more culpable is the person who, who does know the Bible and does know some of the particulars of God's requirements and has wielded it at other people, that that will just be very straightforward. God will say, I will, I will only use the standard that you know that you've been wielding at people and see how your life stacks up and, and the guilt rate will be 100%. And you know what? You'll know that the bleakness of that is starting to really sink in. The badness of, of that bad news is really starting to sink in when you get less and less comfortable with a phrase that we tend to use. You know what the phrase is? Hey, look, we need to hate the sin and love the sinner. That sounds good. But when we say it, what are we talking about? Well, I'm looking at this person in our culture that's dangerous or immoral or scary. And I'm looking at that. But I know that person. I mean, God made that person. That person matters. So I'm looking at that person in our culture. And, okay, so here's where I'm going to land. I'm going to take the high road. We need to 
hate the sin, but love the sinner. The more this gets in your bones, you'll get less comfortable with that because what this should push us to is that we hate our own sin and love the sinner and feel quite a bit of empathy with him or her as we see our own condition. Um, it's strange. It's not strange. It's, I don't know what word to use. Because at that point, when God finally just applies to us what we've applied to others, you know, Paul didn't make this up. Jesus had already said, with the measure you use, remember the rest of that sentence? It will be measured to you. With the measure you use, it will be measured to you. What hacks you off? Who, who enrages you in the news? Who enrages you in Greenville? What enrages you? All right. Now let's apply that standard to you. How do you stack up? With the measure that we use, it will be measured to us. Well, judges, irresponsible, inconsistent judges running around. There's a judgment coming. But uh, what about the judge? And I want to look at this in terms of past, present, future, but let me do it backwards. Future, present, past. Future, present, past. Paul said in the text last week that God's anger, God's wrath is already revealed. It's already present. And strangely, what it looks like is God letting people do what they want. Like, you want to do that? Okay, go ahead and do that. Like, is that what you desire? Do what you desire. That's what his judgment looks like. That was last week. But that is his anger. That is his wrath. But there is a final culmination, an expression of his anger and wrath. And that's, he, he says it in verse 5. He says, Paul writes... Because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. And that word revealed has already showed up in Romans several times. Uh, I don't know if you've ever been to an area with a, with a reservoir and a dam and uh, you know, different ones are configured in different ways, but sometimes you'll, at reservoirs there'll be an area right below the spillway and people can fish and do things like that, but when, but when the water has backed up too much, they'll sound an alarm that the spillway is about to release. And if you've ever been there, when they sound that alarm, people clear out because the floodgates are going to open. We're letting you know the floodgates are going to open. And Paul is saying the floodgates are going to open. If you take what you know because you're made in God's image and you hit other people with it and it's always aimed at other people or if you know the specifics, you've done a lot of Bible study and you aim that at other people, understand that if that's going to be your MO, there is a, a warning siren going off right now of something that's going to happen in the future when the full expression of the anger of God is made known. That's the future. But what about the present? 
verse 4 is amazing. It is amazing because it's like in this just heavy bad news passage is this bright light pulsating. Verse 4, what does it say? Do you presume on the riches of His kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? Understand what Paul just said. If I may put it this way, the main way that God nudges on people that this not be your M.O. is not even through sermons like this. The main way that God nudges is He is kind to us. That everything that our taste buds like, every song where you go, ah, man, they just get it. If they made that CD just for me, they get it. Every just belly laugh with a friend, that that is the generosity of God saying to you, you need to trust me. You cannot earn your way. You are already too ripe for judgment. You cannot dig yourself out. I want you to trust me. Because if your righteousness is going to be that you're going to, you're going to figure out who around you in Greenville or in the culture or on the TV that you stack up better than and just constantly compare yourself and they always lose and you always win, if that's going to be your way to save yourself, it will be scorched. But look, look at how I'm dealing with you, even as you are right for judgment. Would you turn to me? I'm being patient with you. I'm being good to you. I'll give you all the mercy you need. I'll make you clean in a way that you can't make yourself clean. And you won't have to, be, you won't have to feel clean by comparing yourself to uh, our decadent culture. But, um, but there's also something in the past. Verse 10. It says that glory and honor and peace is going to be shown for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek. Now, that sounds like a future passage, but you know what? It does tell us something about the past. And what is, what is that? That there's one person who's ever really deserved that verse. There's one person who really deserved all that glory and immortality and honor. There's one person who was so if I may say it this way, airtight. He always loved God. He always loved people. Now, we're not quite there yet, but I'll just pop if I don't get to say this in a bad news passage. What if the judge, sounding the, the, the reservoir alarm, what if he's the one looking at us saying, if you will trust me, my son, who deserves everything you want. He'll do it for you. You can't do it. Let him live the life for you that deserves all the glory and the immortality and the honor that we crave because we're human. Let him do that for you, and I'll give you credit for it. 
Let him bear the wrath and the fury that you richly deserve. And he'll take it for you, but you've got to trust me. And I'll end with this. Did you know there's another... uh, Better be careful how I say this. There's another dam passage, D-A-M, damming up in Psalm 31. And it says, For those who fear the Lord... God is storing up good things. That we get trickles of it now. You know, the floodgates, they release. That's part of His goodness to us. But there will come a day that if you will take the judge at His word, that I don't have to be your judge, that one day this entire reservoir of pleasures and delights, things that we can't even imagine right now, will be made known to us. It makes you wonder if the thing that God's people are going to be saying to each other in the new earth is, "Uh uh-uh, as we just bump into thing after thing where we can't... No, no, over the top, Uh uh-uh. Over and over and over. He has stored that up for those who will trust Him. The judge can be Savior. And if that's the case, then um, we of all people should be humble and should humble ourselves as folks who naturally judge others but deserve it ourselves. Let's pray together. Father, thank you that wrath and fury doesn't have to be our future, that wrath and fury to us can be primarily the cross, something we deserved, and that your precious son did not, falling on him so that it never falls on us, never falls on your people. And Lord God, for the person here who's just wrestling with these things or just starting to understand, would you make this clear? Would would you enable that person not to um, despair over bad news, but see that the good news is for the bad news and give him or her faith? But Lord, for we who've heard this and we've grown accustomed to it, would you let us see this for what it is? Would it make the good news yet again so sweet, so good, so life-giving and real that we change? And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.